Good evening, everybody. I'll begin with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, our great sovereign God, we give you thanks that even during those times in history when you are not inspiring new revelation, new books of the Bible, that you are providentially moving your plan forward. We can be confident in your provision. We can be confident that you will take care of us, you will provide for us, and that you will move the events of this world together towards their ultimate climax. We thank you for that. We ask that you will help us to understand how you did that during these intertestamental years, the time between testaments, between the Old Testament and the New. We thank you for this, for your provision for us. We ask that you would help us to understand the truths that you have preserved for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the intertestamental period, sometimes called the silent years. When we say the silent years, we don't mean that nothing happened during this period of time. It's about 400 years long from the last writings of the Old Testament to the first writings of the New Testament. A great deal happened during that period of time. We don't mean that we don't know anything about this period of time because we do know a great deal about these years. What we mean when we say the silent years, we mean that God was not inspiring new revelations. He was not causing men to write new books of the Bible. So that's what we mean by the silent years. When we go from the world of the Old Testament to the world of the New Testament, it becomes obvious that there has been a dramatic change in the world. For example, we read nothing in the Old Testament about the synagogue, and yet the synagogue is a prominent feature of Judaism that exists in the Gospels. So where did the synagogue, synagogue come from? How did that happen? How did that come about? We don't read anything in the Old Testament about Pharisees or Sadducees, and yet they are a prominent feature of Judaism in the Gospels. Where did they come from? How did that come about? That's why studying this intertestamental period will help us to understand the changes that took place in the world during those 400 years, those silent years, and how they affect the events of the Gospels and the New Testament. One of the things that took place was the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jewish people. So the diaspora is the dispersion of the Jewish people to the far corners of the world. It began when Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So the, the diaspora refers to the Jewish people who are living outside the Holy Land. Scholars estimate that 80% of Jews in the New Testament era lived outside the Holy Land. So even though the Jewish people were allowed to return to the land of Israel and to the, to the city of Jerusalem, most of them did not. 
So the, the vast majority of them still continue to live in other parts of the world. Another feature that we read about in the New Testament is the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish Senate that handled most Judean affairs. So under, the, under Roman rule, they allowed a great deal of autonomy. They allowed, to, they allowed the, the local people to take care of most business themselves. And the Jewish people did that through the Sanhedrin. That was the, the Senate that handled most Judean affairs. The synagogue. That's the local Jewish assembly halls used for community meetings, for public prayers, and for reading of the scripture. When the Jewish people were in the land of Israel, the temple was the focal point of worship. But when, once most of the Jewish people were dispersed to other parts of the world, they no longer had access to the temple. And for much of the time that they were in exile, the, the temple did not even exist. It had to be rebuilt. But the synagogue developed as a, as a local assembly hall, a place for the Jewish people to meet when they did not have access to the temple. And even later when they did return, some of them to the, to the Holy Land, they continued to meet locally in synagogues. Another thing that we read about often in the gospels is rabbi or rabbis, plural. These are Jewish, Jewish sages who are knowledgeable in the law. At the time of the gospel, uh, a, a wise man, a man who studied the scriptures and, and taught them was, was referred to as a rabbi. Later on, rabbi became more of a, more of a formalized, institutionalized position, much like uh, uh, a clergyman, like, like pastors or, or priests are today. But in the time of the New Testament, it hadn't been formalized like that yet. We look at literature of the intertestamental period. And from now on, I'm just going to abbreviate intertestamental period as IP because it takes up so much room. But the literature of the IP of the intertestamental period the literature from which we learn a great deal about this period of time. You've all heard, of course, of the Septuagint. It was written during this period of time. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was done in Alexandria in Egypt. The Torah was translated from Hebrew into Greek around 250 BC. And it didn't happen all at once. Uh, it probably took to 125 BC before all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. We also look at the Apocrypha. These are books, most of which were written in this period of time, intertestamental period. There may be one or so that were written in the ADs, but most of them were written in this intertestamental period. And these are books that are accepted in the Catholic, but not Protestant canon. As I said, they were written during the intertestamental period. 
and as we'll see later on, not only in the Catholic Bible, but also in the Eastern Orthodox Bible. Then there are the pseudepigrapha. That word means false title. And what we mean by that is they were not written by the author to whom they are attributed. So many of these books are attributed to, to people like Noah or Enoch or Ezra, but actually they were written long after those men lived and died. So that's why we call them pseudepigrapha. And there are quite a few of these writings. Uh, modern collections of pseudepigrapha uh, have about 60 different titles, 60 different documents that make up the pseudepigrapha. So this was a very popular method of writing during this intertestamental period where you, you uh, wrote down your ideas and then you attributed it to some uh, famous person. Then there are the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were found in, in 1947, discovered in 1947. And they are a collection of many different kinds of literature, Old Testament books, apocryphal and pseudepigraphal writings. And some of them are sectarian documents, documents that we believe are from the Essenes. And we'll talk about those later. The books of the Apocrypha. So if you look at, it, at the Old Testament in a Catholic Bible, you will find that they have more books than we do. In, in the total Bible, we have 66 books. They have 73. They have seven more books than we do. Tobit and Judith, First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, and Baruch. Not only do they have additional books in their Bibles, but they also have some additional chapters in some of the books. They have additions to the book of Esther. Uh, the book of, of Esther in Catholic Bibles begins with the dream of Mordecai. And then there is Haman's letter. See, in our Bibles, we, we are told about Haman's letter, but they ha actually have what they claim to be the, the text of the letter itself. Then there's the prayer of Mordecai. Uh, apparently one, one of the things that bothered people about the book of Esther is that God isn't mentioned. So they had to stick that in there. That, so there would be some mention of God. Then there is a, a section about uh, Esther's reception by the king, his receiving Esther when she approaches him. And then another letter, a Hezuerus letter, the letter that he issues uh, contramanding the the letter of Haman. They have the text of that letter. And then uh, the book closes with a fulfillment of Mordecai's dream from the beginning of the book. So they've added all that to the book of Esther. And the editions that they have uh, were, are not modern editions. They were written during this intertestamental period. And then there are some additions to the book of Daniel. Some extra chapters there, Susanna's Virtue and Bell and the Dragon. These are also added to the Catholic Bibles. Now the Eastern Orthodox have all of the editions that the Catholics have and then some. They have some extra editions that even the Catholics don't have. So in addition to the 
editions that the Catholics have, the Eastern Orthodox Apocrypha includes Second Ezra. So they have our book of Ezra, they call it First Ezra, and then they have Second Ezra. And then they have Third Maccabees. So the Catholics have First Maccabees and Second Maccabees. Well, the Eastern Orthodox have First Maccabees, Second Maccabees, and Third Maccabees. And if you look at the book of Psalms in either a Protestant Bible or a Catholic Bible, you will see 150 Psalms. Well, the Eastern Orthodox have 151 Psalms. They have an extra Psalm added to the book of Psalms. So all of these apocryphal writings were written during this intertestamental period. But we can be certain that the apocryphal books are not scripture. They are never used by the Jews as scripture. They were never used by Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, as scripture. And most importantly, they were never used by Jesus and the apostles as scripture. They never quoted these books or referred to them. Even if we look at the Apocrypha itself, we can see that the people who lived during this time, during this time period, uh, did not believe that there was a prophet of God who was an inspired prophet who was speaking or writing on behalf of God. If we turn to uh, 1 Maccabees chapter 4, it says, so they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. So in other words, there wasn't a prophet. They recognized that there wasn't any prophet at that time speaking for God. Also in the book of 1 Maccabees chapter 9, thus there was great distress in Israel such as had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. So they recognized once again that prophets had ceased to appear among them. There were no prophets at that time. And finally, in 1 Maccabees 14, when the Jews and their priests decided that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. So they were waiting patiently eagerly for a trustworthy prophet, a prophet of God. There wasn't one at that time. Now we look at the succession of empires, of kingdoms during this time period of the silent years, the intertestamental period. The prophet Daniel, you will remember in Daniel chapter two, interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream about this huge metallic image with a head of gold, uh, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron. And this, Daniel tells us, represents the succession of Gentile empires. In this image of Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire. The arms and chest of silver represent the Medo-Persian Empire, and the belly and thighs of bronze represent the Greco-Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great. And finally, the legs of iron represent the Roman Empire. When the Old Testament concludes, when it closes, the 
Jewish people are still under the domination of the second empire, the Persian empire. They were taken into exile by the Babylonian empire and the Babylonian empire was succeeded by the Persian empire. These other empires, the, the Grecian empire, the Macedonian empire and the Roman empire, those were still yet in the future uh, from the perspective of, of Daniel. But they did come to pass, just as Daniel had predicted. Likewise, in, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, beasts, the four beasts were used to picture these same four kingdoms. The beast that was like a lion was the Babylonian Empire. The beast that was like a bear was the Persian Empire. The beast that was like a leopard was the Grecian Empire. And this dreadful, horrible, terrible beast was the Roman Empire. And then note that this leopard-like beast that represents the Grecian Empire had four heads. That is significant. In Daniel chapter 8, he talked about the ram and the he-goat, the male goat. The ram represented Persia. The male goat represented Greece. And this goat that represented Greece had one notable horn, which represented Alexander the Great. But once that horn was broken off, that horn was replaced by four horns. And that again is significant. After the death of Alexander the Great, who started this Greco-Macedonian Empire, his kingdom on his death was divided among his four of his generals. Cassander took Greece, Asinicus took Asia Minor, and Seleucus took Syria and Babylon, and Ptolemy took Egypt. The reason that I have the last two, Seleucus and Ptolemy in red, is because those are the two that become important in the narrative of the Bible. Those are the two that affect Israel. There's a map of how the world of the Eastern Mediterranean was divided up among Alexander's generals. So up north in Syria, with the capital there of Antioch, that is where the Seleucids were. And down in Egypt, the green, that is where the Ptolemies were. Israel was caught in the middle between these two powers vying for control, vying for domination. Israel was caught right in the middle. So those two are the two that affect Israel. The other two over in Greece and Asia Minor really didn't have an impact on Israel. So from that point forward, you're looking at Syria and, and uh, Egypt. Daniel chapter 11 gives, goes into great detail telling us about this, uh, the strife and the intrigue that goes on between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So this is the succession of empires that we see during this intertestamental period. First there is the Babylonian period from 586 when uh, Judah is taken into captivity. The temple is destroyed to 539 BC. And when I give you these dates, um, I'm not giving you the necessarily the dates of the empires themselves, but the, the dates uh, under which 
under which Israel was under their control. So from the time that, that Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC to 539 BC, they were under the domination of Babylon. So Babylon actually started, Babylonian Empire started before that in about uh, 626 BC. And then Babylon was replaced by the Persian Empire. They took over in 539 and that goes to 331 BC when Alexander the Great comes on the scene. Then we come to the Hellenistic period, in other words, the, the Greek period, or to us the Hellenistic period. So from 331 to 164, the, Israel was under the domination of the Greeks. And within that Greek period, that Hellenistic period, First, they were under the Ptolemies in Egypt from 320 when Alexander died to 198 BC. And then in 198, the Seleucids took over. They, they pushed the Ptolemies back and they took control of Israel. So in 198 to 164, we have the Seleucids ruling Israel. And then there was a brief respite when the Jews were able to obtain some freedom, some independence. This is the period of the Maccabees, also referred to as the Hasmoneans. Hasmonean is the same thing as Maccabees. So when you read about Has the Hasmonean dynasty in history books or in study Bibles, that's referring to the same thing as the Maccabees. The Maccabee period, is in the second century, it begins 164 to 63 BC. And then in 63 BC, the Romans take over. And Rome lasts longer than 135 AD, but that's, that's the time of the second Jewish revolt, Bar Kokhba. And of course the Roman period includes that New Testament period, the time in which the Gospels were written. And of course, the, the time also when the epistles were written and, and also the book of Revelation. Now, the most significant king as, as far as the Seleucids and the history of Israel is Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was the Seleucid king who made a concerted effort to Hellenize the Jewish people. It was the dream of Alexander the Great not only to conquer the world, but also to bring all of the world under uh, Greek influence, Greek culture. And this is referred to as Hellenization. But the Seleucid king made, who made this concerted effort to Hellenize the Jewish people was Antiochus IV. He prevented religious observances. He desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar, and he erected a pagan altar to Zeus. Uh, remember that Daniel talked about the abomination of desolation? Well, often there are, as you've seen, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Uh, the 
erecting this pagan altar to honor Zeus is a, is a near fulfillment of this abomination of desolation. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation as being something yet in the future. So there certainly will be a, a far fulfillment, but this was a near fulfillment. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was transformed into a Greek city with a gymnasium and theater. The inhabitants adopted Greek dress and circumcision was forbidden. So uh, how did they know whether you circumcised or not? Well, in a Greek gymnasium, people competed in athletic contests in the nude, so they could tell whether you were circumcised or not. In the village of Modain, an agent of Antiochus IV, this corrupt, evil, pagan king, this Greek king who ruled in Syria, an agent of Antiochus IV urged an elderly priest named Mattathias to offer sacrifice to a pagan god, but Mattathias refused. One of the Jewish leaders tried to appease these, the Syrians by offering a sacrifice. Mattathias killed him and the agent and fled to the mountains with his sons. He had five sons. Other zealots joined them. A guerrilla guerrilla army was formed, which defeated the Syrian army and liberated Jerusalem. So these men, Mattathias and his five sons, are known as the Maccabees. Here's a timeline of the Maccabees. In 198, the Seleucids gained control over Judea. Prior to that time, uh, Judea had been under control of Ptolemies in Egypt. In 174, Antiochus IV deposes the high priest, Onias III. In 168 or 167, Antiochus IV loots and desecrates the temple. In 167, 166, the Jewish people, or at least some of them, decided that they had had enough. And Mattathias and his five sons lead the revolt against Antiochus IV. In 164, Judas Maccabeus, he's the one who is referred to as Judas Maccabee, the, the hammer, and gave the Maccabees their name. He purifies the temple. And that is the origin of the festival of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's a festival that began in this intertestamental period. But Hanukkah Hanukkah is mentioned in the New Testament, in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So it points out that Jesus was at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, at the temple. The Feast of Dedication comes, Hanukkah comes in in the winter, in November or December in our calendar. Here's the map of Israel under the Maccabees. 
before the Maccabees rose to power, Judea was a, was a very tiny territory, just the, the pinkish colored territory down there by the, by the Dead Sea to the northeast or northwest, excuse me, of the Dead Sea. But after the Maccabees revolted against the Syrians, the Seleucids, they greatly expanded the territory to include the first the orangish territory, then the yellow. So after they revolted, you can see that, that the land of Judea, the land of Israel, occupied, occupied a very large territory. Remember that I said the, the Hasmoneans are also the same as the Maccabees. So the sequence of Hasmonean rulers. I go into some detail explaining some factors and features about these Hasmonean rulers, the Maccabees, because I think it's important in, in understanding what led up to the conditions that we see in the in the New Testament, in the Gospels. So we have first the, the sons, the, the sons of of Mattathias, some of those sons uh, become rulers. First there is Judas. Uh, he's one of the sons of Mattathias. So is Jonathan and Simon. And then we look at the descendants of Maccabees, John Hyrcanus, Aristobulus I, Alexander, Janaeus, the one woman ruler, Salome Alexandra, and then Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus. Those two brothers are trying to fight it out to see who will be the ruler. We'll take a look at each one of those individually. Before his death, Mattathias in 166 or 165 BC gave the leadership to Judas, one of his five sons. Judas bore the nickname Maccabee, the hammer, a name that was popular, popularly given to his brothers and their descendants in the, the resistance movement as a whole. So this really was hammer time. The family, however, is more accurately named Hasmonean from an ancestor, Hashmon, the great-grandfather of Mattathias. So that's where the name Hasmonean comes from. And their period may be better termed, better be termed the Hasmonean period. From their strongholds in the wilderness, Judas and his followers carried on a guerrilla campaign, raiding villages, overthrowing pagan altars, killing Jews who were Hellenist sympathizers, and circumcising children by force. After a group of faithful Jews were killed on the Sabbath because they judged it a violation of the commandments to fight on that day, even the Hasidim, the, the pious, the ones who were loyal to the law and the covenant, they decided to dispense with Sabbath observance when it was necessary for self-defense. The pious cast their lot with Judas, and the resist resistance movement assumed the character of a holy war. <laughs> 
So the the pious ones, the Hasidim, decided to join the Maccabees in their revolt. Judas proved himself a master of guerrilla tactics with a knowledge of the countryside and fresh support with each new success. He defeated every Syrian detachment sent after him. The need for troops in the east against the Parthians. The Parthians were the Persians, the descendants of the Persians to the east. And I'll talk a little bit more about that empire when we get into the book of Matthew, talk about the, the wise men. But anyway, the need for troops in the east against the Parthians and internal conflicts kept the Syrians from throwing their full force against the Jewish insurgents. So the, the Syrians, the Seleucids, couldn't uh, bring as much force as they wanted to against the, the Jewish uh, rebels because they had to deal with other problems. So the Maccabees were able to be victorious against the Seleucids. This is just another example of how God is sovereign. God is providentially moving the events of history to bring about his will. Finally, in 165 or 164 BC, Antiochus IV withdrew the ban on the Jewish religion, but he left Menelaus in the high priesthood and the garrison on the Acre, that was a, a fort in Jerusalem where the Seleucids kept some soldiers stationed. This Menelaus was a, a puppet, you might say, somebody that uh, the Seleucids had put in into the office of high priest. Nevertheless, Judas' troops moved into Jerusalem and kept the Syrians occupied while the temple area was rededicated. The idol altar was dumped in an unclean place, possibly the, the Valley of Hinnom, and the sacred furniture was restored. A new altar built according to the directions in the law was set up. On the 25th of the Hebrew month of Kislev, and that would have been on December 14th in that year, 164 BC, this was the third anniversary in the profanation of the, of the altar. On that very day, the daily burnt offering was resumed under a new, on a new uh, ceremonially clean altar. In commemoration of the event, a new festival was added to the Jewish calendar, Hanukkah, the feast of dedication, commonly called the Feast of Lights. And I showed you where that is mentioned in the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. When Antiochus IV died the following year, the Judas laid siege to the Syrian garrison in Jerusalem. The Syrian regent, Lysias, led an army southward. As he was on the point of crushing Judas' forces, news of trouble for him in Antioch caused him to stop the attack. So once again, God uh, can intervene providentially and cause uh, the events of history to take a different course. <clears throat> 
He confirmed the restoration of the temple service according to ancient practice, but he ordered the destruction of the fortifications the Maccabees had erected in the temple area. He further deposed Menelaus, finally decided to get rid of Menelaus since the Jews were so opposed to him, and he nominated a different man, Elsimus, for the high priesthood. The Hasmoneans were not content with their achievements and they rejected the Syrian appointed Hellenizer. He was still a Hellenizer, Alsomus. The Hasidim, the pious ones, however, at first accepted Alsomus in return for his recognition that they represented the correct interpretation of the ancestral laws. So this new high priest, Alsomus, he uh, went along with the Hasidim and said, okay, you, got, you guys got it right. You understand things correctly. And so for a while, the Hasidim, the pious ones were willing to accept that. The Hasidim withdrew from the revolt once the narrow religious aims had been accomplished. But Judas continued the struggle undertaking campaigns for religio-political purposes. Judas also began a policy of concentration of the Jewish population bringing groups of Jews from outlying regions into Judea for their protection and for the strengthening of his position. There is strength in numbers as the saying goes. He wanted to bring more people into the Jerusalem area to strengthen his position. Fresh disturbances by Judas, still rallying things up, led Alcimus, the new high priest, and Hellenizers to appeal for Syrian help. Judas was killed in an engagement against an overwhelming Syrian army in 160 BC. So then we go to the next Maccabee, Asmonian ruler, Jonathan, who was also a son of Adathias. For a time, the Syrian military power kept Judea quiet. But Judas' brother, Jonathan, did not give up. Finally, dissension over the Seleucid throne played into his hands. So the, the ruler of the Seleucids died and, and there's dissension over who was to be the new king. The pretender Alexander Ballas claimed to be the son of Antiochus IV. He won the support of Jonathan's followers in 152 BC by allowing Jonathan to maintain a military force and appointing him to the high priesthood, vacant since the death of, of um, Elsimus. So Jonathan, one of the Maccabees, is appointed high priest. The Hasmonean period offers many ironies, but one of the strangest was that a Hasmonean, whose family rose in revolt against Antiochus IV for his intervention in Jewish religious affairs, that began with the deposing and appointing high priest, would accept the high priesthood from one who based his right to bestow it on a claim to be the son of that same Antiochus. You see the irony in that? That the, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, that rose in revolt against Antiochus IV, and now here comes someone who claims to be the son of Antiochus IV, and he appoints one of the Maccabees as high priest. It's very ironic. Jonathan had neither the military genius of Judas 
his elder brother, nor the statesmanship of his successor, his other brother, Simon. But he succeeded in playing off the rival claimants to the Syrian throne until the Syrian general, Trypho, acting as a regent for the infant son of Alexander Malus, used treachery to imprison and finally kill him. So Jonathan played off the various claimants to the Seleucid throne so that he could stay in power. The next ruler is Simon. He's the last survivor of the five brothers. Was Simon. With strong Jewish backing, he supported the cause of the Seleucid king Demetrius II against Trypho. In return, Demetrius in 142 BC lifted tribute from the Jews. The Seleucid Empire was still exacting tribute from the Jews. Um, that was lifted by Demetrius in 142 BC. A decision that implied complete independence. The following year, the garrison on the Acre, the, that's that Seleucid fort in Jerusalem, was starved out. And the last vestige of Seleucid control was removed from Judea. So it was at that point that the the Judeans, the Israelites, were independent. An assembly of the Jewish people in 140 BC formally proclaimed Simon, commander of the army, ruler of the nation, and high priest. The last office was confirmed to his family, note this, forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise to declare the will of God. So once again, we see that during this intertestamental period, the, the people realized that there wasn't a prophet. There wasn't someone who was inspired to speak and write for God. Up to this time, Jonathan and Simon had technically been Seleucid officials. Now was laid the legal foundation for the rule of a new dynasty. Efforts to reassert Syrian authority were repulsed, but Simon, perhaps the worthiest of the, the sons of Mattathias, was not immune to internal troubles. In, in 134 BC, he was assassinated and two of his sons were imprisoned by his son-in-law, Ptolemy. The next ruler of the Hasmoneans is a man named John Hyrcanus. From the securing of religious freedom under Judas to the supplanting of the priestly aristocracy under Jonathan to the gaining of political independence under Simon, the house of Hashmon was to go on to military conquest under John Hyrcanus and to kingship under his sons. So now the, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans are independent. And now they go on to military conquest. John acted swiftly on the death of his father Simon. He routed Ptolemy, his, who was uh, Simon's son-in-law. He routed Ptolemy, who had killed John's two brothers and mother, and was acclaimed by the people as his father's successor. John embarked on a policy of expansion. He began to use hired mercenaries 
So it wasn't enough to look to Jewish soldiers anymore. He had brought in foreign soldiers, mercenaries. He subjected the Idumeans to the south. Idumea is, a, is Latin for Edom, so that's Edom, that's Esau, the descendants of Esau. And you'll see how they come into play, how they come into the picture later. So he subjugated the Idumeans to the south and by, and by compelling them to be circumcised, he forced them to be circumcised, he formally incorporated them into the Jewish nation. And you'll see how that comes into play. To the north, he destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim and he captured Samaria. And you'll see how there was always strife between the Jews and Samaritans. We see that in, in the New Testament as well, in the Gospels. Josephus mentions the Pharisees. Jo Josephus didn't actually live during this intertestamental period. He lived shortly after the time of Christ, but he did write extensively about this period of time. And through his writings, we learn many things about intertestamental period. Josephus mentions the Pharisee as an opposition group to the Hasmonean high priesthood in connection with the reign of John Hyrcanus. The Pharisees didn't like this Hellenization that was going on. John, however, received the support of another group, the Sadducees, and that's another group that we will see in the Gospels the dominant party in the Sanhedrin, that's that, that uh, high court that handles most things in the, in the nation of Judah, Judea. The, it's ironic also that the, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans who, who rose in revolt against this process of Hellenization Later on, their very own rulers were in favor of Hellenization. The rule of John Hyrcanus brought about brought stability and security to Judean affairs, so that he was remembered as the outstanding Hasmonean leader. He's the one who is remembered most fondly. Now, the next ruler is Aristobulus I. John's son, Aristobulus I, was the first of his family to take the title king after the fashion of the Hellenistic monarchies. So this Hasmonean line, which began opposing Hellenization, is becoming more and more Hellenized. This is but a further indication of the increasing acceptance of Hellenization by the dynasty that had come to power in reaction against Hellenism. Aristobulus made conquest in Galilee of the Gentiles. And that is significant uh, in the gospel formation as well, because he began the settlement of new Jewish colonists in that region. That Joseph of Bethlehem, you know, Joseph, he's the, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That Joseph of Benjamin dwelt of Bethlehem, excuse me, dwelt in Nazareth may be the result of the expansionist policy of the later Hasmoneans, who in order to secure their new conquest, 
settled Jewish colonists in the conquered regions. So that may be why when we read in the Gospels that Joseph, even though he was from Bethlehem, his family was from Bethlehem, he lived up north in Galilee. That may be why, because the, the Asmonians had settled Jewish colonists in these other regions that they had conquered. Alexander Janaeus. Uh, Alexander, uh, Aristobulus' widow, Salome Alexandra, designated his oldest brother, Alexander Janaeus, as high priest and king, high priest and king, and then she married him. Of all the Hasmoneans, he acquired the worst reputation. Alexander extended his conquest to greatest extent of any Jewish ruler since Solomon. So it was under Alexander Janaeus that that uh, this Maccabean kingdom uh, reached its furthest extent. To do this, he had to make extensive use of foreign mercenaries. It wasn't enough, he found, to, to just rely on Jewish soldiers. He had to bring in mercenaries. Alexander was a Hellenistic monarch without scruples who had little regard for the spiritual dignities of his priestly office. So remember, he's, he's theoretically the high priest as well, but he doesn't uh, pay much attention to being a godly high priest. Strained relations soon developed between king and people. Alexander Janaeus was the king and people didn't like the way things were going. The people finally raised a rebellion against him, which he was compelled to put down with mercenaries, of course. He had to put down a revolt among his own people. The rebels called in the Seleucid king Demetrius, Demetrius III, to aid them. This is another irony, the irony of ironies. The Jews, who had supported the Hasmoneans in order to throw off the Seleucid yoke, now invited the Seleucid king to help rid them of the oppressions of a Hasmonean. <laughs> so the, the people had turned to the Hasmoneans to deliver them from this process of Hellenization. Now they had to appeal to the Hellenizers to help them get rid of a Hasmonean, a Maccabee. Irony of ironies. The Pharisees were the major antagonists of Alexander. Janaeus. Remember, the Pharisees didn't like this process of Hellenization. But according to Josephus, the king, on his deathbed, advised his wife to make peace with him. So he realized that his wife was going to have a great deal of trouble if she didn't make peace with, with the Pharisees. So now we come to that one woman ruler among the Maccabees, among the Hasmoneans, Salome Alexandra. Alexander bequeathed his kingdom to his wife, to whom he owed it in the first place. Remember, his, his wife was the one who uh, had appointed him king and high priest. Israel's only queen in the second temple times. She had a better record than did the Old Testament queens. When we think about Old Testament queens, we think about Athaliah and uh, Queen Jezebel up in Israel, 
very wicked individuals. But uh, Israel, the only queen in the in Second Temple times, had, had a little better record than Athaliah or Jezebel. She appointed her elder son, Hyrcanus II, high priest. He was retiring and pliable enough to permit her to run mundane affairs. Under her reign, the Pharisees came to dominance in the Sanhedrin. It didn't happen very often that the Pharisees were dominant in the Sanhedrin, as we'll see when we get to New Testament times. Aristobulus II and uh, Hyrcanus II. So now we come to two Maccabees, who has Monians, who are vying for the throne. Aristobulus II, the younger son of Alexandra, was ambitious, and he had allied himself with the Sadducees. On his mother's death, he defeated Hyrcanus II and assumed the kingship and high priesthood. So Hyrcanus II was another son of Alexandra, but so they're brothers, Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II, but Aristobulus II defeated Hyrcanus, and then he became king and high priest. Hyrcanus may have been willing to retire, but Antipater, governor of Idumea, saw an opportunity to, to use Hyrcanus to advance his own interests and kept strife and suspicion stirred up between the brothers. So notice that we have Antipater coming on the scene. And he is who? He's an Edumean. And who are the Edumeans? They are the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. So this takes us clear back to the book of Genesis, the strife between Jacob and Esau. And here we see it cropping up again. We see an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, working his way in, worming his way in, trying to dominate the descendants of Jacob. Civil war broke out between Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, the latter supported by Aretas III, king of the Nabataean Arabs. Uh, those of you who have been to Israel, uh, some of you may have been to Petra, that was the capital of the Nabataean Arabs. So uh, Aristobulus had Antipater, the Idumean, the Edomite, supporting him, and Hyrcanus uh, had the king of the Nabataean Arabs supporting him. So they, they weren't able to, to break the stalemate between these two brothers. The armies of the Roman general Pompey appeared in Syria after having overcome Asia Minor, Armenia, and the last vestiges of Seleucid power of Syria. They were all put down by the Roman Empire. Both Jewish claimants presented their cases to the Romans. That was a bad move because that was the end of the Hasmonean dynasty. We see the rise of Antipater. The Roman general Pompey sided 
in favor of Rufinus, but he only appointed Hyrcanus as high priest, not as king. Civil power went to Antipater, the Idumean, the Edomite. Later, the Romans declared Antipater's son king of the Jews. Antipater's son was Herod the Great. And we'll get into the gospel time period with the rise of Herod the Great becoming king of the Jews. So we see the end of the Hasmoneans and the rise of Antipater and his son Herod the Great. I, I want to spend a few minutes now with the family of Herod the Great because this is getting into New Testament times into the Gospels and this will help you to keep your Herods straight. A casual reader of the Gospels might assume that the Herod who was ruling at the time of Christ's birth was the same Herod who was ruling at the time of the crucifixion. That is not the case. Because if you remember, the Herod who was ruling at the time of Christ's birth died shortly after Christ's birth. So he couldn't have been reigning when Christ was crucified. That is a different Herod. And taking a look at the family of Herod the Great helps us to understand that. So we have Herod the Great. Then we have uh, Archelaus, who was a son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas, who was another son. Philip, who was another son. Herod Philip. It's easy to confuse these two, but they're different people. Then we have a grandson, Herod Agrippa I, and a great-grandson, Herod Agrippa II. The dates that I've given you here are the dates uh, of their rulership, the dates when they were in power. Not, these are not the dates of their of their lifespans. These are the dates of their of their rulership. That's why there are no dates associated with Herod Philip because he never ruled over anything. But anyway, these are descendants of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is best known to Christians as the king who negotiated with the wise men, caused the Holy Family to flee to Egypt, and was responsible for the slaughter of the innocents. The scriptural account is certainly in keeping with the ruthless character described in secular history. In order to maintain his hold on power, Herod was willing to do whatever he deemed necessary. He had his brother executed, two of his sons executed, and one of his wives executed, all because he suspected they were plotting against him or might plot against him. Because it because Herod ate a kosher diet, I, I mentioned this to, to Peter last time. Because Her Herod ate a kosher diet, uh, Augustus Caesar joked, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Because if you were Herod's pig, you were safe, but he might execute his son. Herod proved to be an able king. His firm rule brought peace and order to his realm. He brought great wealth to his kingdom through agriculture and commercial enterprises. He spent uh, these funds in a lavish building program. 
most notable for Jewish history was Herod's massive rebuilding of the temple. Although he was never popular with the Jews, remember he was a Jumean, an Edomite. The rabbis did pay tribute to his work by saying, he who has not seen Herod's temple has not seen beauty. So they were very impressed with his uh, temple project. On Herod's death in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided by Rome among three of his sons. Archelaus received Judea, Samaria, and Idumea as ethnarch. He possessed his father's bad qualities without his abilities. Protests from the Jews and the Samaritans finally secured his dismissal in AD 6. So he didn't rule very long. Yeah, the, the Jews and the Samaritans complained about him, and Rome finally didn't get rid of him. He's mentioned in, in Matthew 2.22, because after the Holy Family returned from Egypt, it says that Joseph didn't want to settle in the territory that was ruled by Archelaus, so he went up to Galilee. Philip was made tetrarch of, of Echeria and Trachonitis. I should mention that um, the difference between ethnarch and tetrarch, uh, Archelaus was, was uh, appointed ethnarch, and that means he was the ruler over half a kingdom. Philip was made tetrarch, that means he's the ruler of, of a fourth of a kingdom. He was made tetrarch of Echeria and Trachonitis, northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Until his death in AD 34, he governed justly and conscientiously. He rebuilt his capital of Panion, modern Benias, and named it Caesarea. And we call it Caesarea Philippi in order to distinguish it be between this and the, the other Caesarea down on the Mediterranean coast. Some of you who have been to Israel have probably been to Caesarea Philippi, that, that area. Josephus' judgment was that in his conduct of the government, he showed a moderate and easygoing position. So he's better than most of the members of the Herodian family. Herod Antipas was made tetrarch over Galilee and Perea. The most capable and astute of the brothers, he ruled for some 40 years. You are familiar with this story from the Gospels. He divorced the daughter of the Nabataean king in order to marry his niece, Herodias, who was the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip. Remember, there's Herod Philip, and then there's Philip. He's not to be confused with Philip, the Tetrarch. Herod Philip didn't have any, any kingdom that he was the ruler of. So that's why uh, Herodias probably didn't mind being stolen away by Herod Antipas, because she preferred to, be, to have a husband who had some political clout versus a husband who didn't have any political clout. John the Baptist's combination, condemnation of this reunion led to his execution. We read about that in Mark chapter 6. Herod Antipas was the Herod who was ruling at the time of the crucifixion. Luke is the only one of, of the gospel writers who actually mentions that uh, Jesus went before Herod during his trial, not just Pontius Pilate, but also Herod. Luke is the only one who mentions that. Now, the Herod in Acts chapter 12 is a grandson of Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa I. This Herod executed the apostle James and arrested Peter. 
intending to do the same to him. He was intending to execute Peter as well. God didn't allow him to do that. Now, this James that's executed is, is not the James who is the brother of Jesus and who wrote the book of James. This James is the James who is the brother of the Apostle John. He was one of the 12 disciples, one of the original apostles, this particular James. The gruesome death of Herod Agrippa I in AD 44 is recounted by Josephus as well in Acts uh, chapter 12. You remember this story. He was struck down by an angel and eaten by worms. So that's the Herod that is mentioned in Acts chapter 12. He's a grandson of Herod the Great. And then Herod's great-grandson, Herod Agrippa II. He's not called Herod in the Bible, but simply Agrippa. He was the person who heard Paul's defense in Acts chapter 26. He was the son of Herod Agrippa I and great-grandson of Herod the Great. With the death of Herod Agrippa II in about AD 92 or 93, the last Herodian territory was incorporated into the province of Syria and the Herodian family passed from history. So that was the end of the Herodian dynasty. For all we know, there may be uh, some descendants of Herod running around on the earth now. We don't know, and they probably don't know either. But wouldn't it be ironic if some of the descendants of Herod are actually Christians? That would be ironic, wouldn't it? We want to look briefly at some thinkers and writers who influenced the New Testament, the New Testament time period. There is Philo, who is a first century Jewish philosopher who sought to articulate Judaism in a manner appealing to a Greek philosophic setting. So this idea of how to change the Bible to make it more palatable, more acceptable, more relevant to a contemporary audience, that is not a new thing. Philo was doing that up there back in the first century. And then Josephus, I mentioned him before. You've heard of him many times probably. He was an educated first century Jewish historian who wrote especially about Jewish history, partly to, to defend his people and to present them favorably to the Gentiles. Those are the Jewish thinkers and writers who affected the intertestamental and, and uh, New Testament times. These are the Greek thinkers, writers. The Epicureans and the Stoics were the chief rivals for the allegiance of educated people in the Hellenistic age. The Apostle Paul came into conflict with the Epicureans and the Stoics in, in Acts chapter 17 when he spoke in Athens on Mars Hill. Epicureanism was the Greek philosophic school viewing pleasure as the highest good, denying an afterlife and traditional Greek deities. Sometimes uh, in the Roman world, the Epicureans and the Christians were lumped together. And you might think, well, how could anybody possibly accuse, uh, uh, think that Epicureans were, were the same as Christians? Well, the Epicureans and the Christians had one thing in common, and that was that they both uh, rejected the traditional Greek deities. So that's why that happened. The other is the other philosophy is Stoicism, 
was the most popular philosophic sect in the first century. It allowed for continuing the popular practice of religion, but reinterpreted it as meaning for intellectuals. So that's Epicureanism and Stoicism. Um, briefly at some of the Jewish sects that arose in this intertestamental period and continue into the time of the New Testament Gospels. First of all, the Sadducees, the name appears to be derived from Zadok, a high priest in the time of David and Solomon, or maybe it's some other Zadok. The Sadducees were the party of the wealthy priests and their friends in the aristocracy. Their political position and practical sense of survival led them to an openness toward Hellenistic cultural influences. So the Sadducees were very uh, receptive to Hellenism, Hellenization. After the coming of Rome, the Sadducees encouraged collaboration with the ruling power and were interested in maintaining the status quo, which preserved their power and influence. Their center of strength was the temple. Sadducees also dominated the Jewish high court of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees accepted, not, accepted only the written law of Moses as authoritative. They rejected any teaching such as resurrection from the dead that they believed was not found in the Torah. They were relatively few in number, but they wielded disproportionate political power and controlled the high priesthood. Because the center of priestly power was the temple, the Sadducees as a political party disintegrated after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So they weren't around anymore after the destruction of the temple. The name Pharisee is derived from the Hebrew parush, meaning separated. They were an outgrowth of the Hasidim movement that started shortly after the Maccabean revolt. They were people who were very dedicated to obeying the law and they didn't like Hellenization at all. The Pharisees were, for the most part, non-priests. They were small landowners and shopkeepers and artisans of the towns. They were lay scholars who were responsible for the development and the preservation of the oral legal tradition. They considered the traditional interpretation and application of Torah to hold equal authority with the Torah itself. So they emphasized not only the written Torah, but also the oral law. The Pharisees were connected to the synagogue, and they were known for pious living, including prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and tithing. So remember now, the, the Sadducees are connected to the temple, the Pharisees are connected to the local synagogues. They were precise interpreters of the law, especially in the areas of ritual purity, regarding food, crops, feasts, and family. They scrupulously observed the rabbinical and mosaic laws, including rigid observance of the Sabbath. Unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, eternal rewards and punishment, angels and demons. The Pharisees were the only party to survive the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and were the spiritual progenitors of modern Judaism. So modern Judaism comes from the Pharisees, not from the Sadducees or not from the Essenes. The Essenes were a small group, a small separatist ascetic group. Some of them at least became monastics in the wilderness. 
The Essenes are not mentioned in the Gospels, but they are responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, it appears. And so they are significant in Jewish history. Like the Pharisees, they stressed strict legal observance, but they considered the temple priesthood corrupt, and they rejected much of the temple ritual and sacrificial system. It is generally agreed that the Qumran community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls was an Essene group. Because they were convinced that they were the true remnant, these Qumran Essenes, Essenes had separated themselves from Judaism at large and devoted themselves to personal purity and preparation for the final war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. They were expecting this final climactic eschatological battle. They practiced an apocalyptic faith, looking back to the contributions of their teacher of righteousness and forward to the coming of two, possibly three, messiahs. Why did they think there might be two or more messiahs? Well, uh, some of the Jewish people who looked in, into the Old Testament scriptures could understand how one person could be both the suffering servant and the conquering king. So they thought they must be two different individuals. Uh, we know now that there are two different individuals who are Messiah. There are just two different comings of the Messiah. The destruction of the temple in AD 70, however, seems to have delivered a death blow to their apocalyptic expectations. So biblical eschatology didn't unravel the way that they expected it to. Other Jewish groups, their scribes, they were trained interpreters of the Torah, devoted to understanding the law and principles for determining lawful or unlawful actions. There are the zealots, Jewish nationalists who dedicated to the overthrow of the Roman power. And one of Jesus' 12 disciples had been a zealot. The Herodians, a small minority of Jews who supported the Herodian dynasty. Lastly, there are the Samaritans who are an important part of the Gospels. These are people who claim that they were the descendants of Jacob, whom Jews considered to be a mixed blood. They worshiped Israel's God, but only accepted the Pentateuch as scripture. They insisted that Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, was the proper holy site for worship. The origin of the Samaritans is that when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of, of Israel, they, they moved the, the Israelite people out of the land and they moved um, pagan peoples into the land. Well, these pagan people were attacked by wild animals. So they complained to, the, to their Assyrian overlords that they needed, that they didn't know the, the God of the land. So they wanted some Jewish priests to come back and teach them about the God of the land. So that was the, the origin of these Samaritans, people who claimed that they were descendants of Israel and maybe they were partially descendant from Israel. But that was the origin of the strife between the Jews and the Samaritans that you read about in the Gospels. So that is the um, intertestamental period.